but the game was different, right? The the, the rules was different. The ball. Oh, was the, Euro, different. The, Euro, the Euro style is different in America. The Euro style was a lot different in America. <laughs> That's the Especially, first time y'all seen that Euro step too, huh? Absolutely. Hey guys, Coach D here. Just a quick reminder: this episode was shot back in September, so a couple of things have changed. Um, if you are unsure, please, please, please check with your compliance officer of the school that you are attending or that you wish to attend. Um, the need for SATs and ACTs have changed. Transfer rules have changed. Um, and years of eligibility have changed. So please, please, please make sure you check out all the information um, that you need uh, with the relevant parties. And um, yeah, enjoy the show. Really fortunate this afternoon to be joined with uh, Dr. Smith, one of my lecturers from the University of New Mexico. Um, she worked in NCAA compliance. So um, Dr. Smith, you want to tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Yeah. Thanks for the introduction, Dan. Thanks for having me on. Um, like Dan said, my name is Dr. Allison Smith. I'm in my third year as an assistant professor at the University of New Mexico, teaching in sports administration. And before I got my PhD, I worked in the NCAA compliance office for Division II school, Wingate University. It's outside Charlotte, North Carolina. Um, and also worked in the admissions department, specifically admitting um, student athletes. So I only worked with the athletic side of admissions. Um, so I know a decent amount about Division I and II uh, compliance and eligibility. So I'm hoping I can answer some questions for your group today. Marvelous. Thank you very much. I'm really excited uh, to be talking with you today. And um, is, I think this is a side of the, the, the college aspect that gets overlooked a lot of the time. Um, a lot of, you know, recruits, a lot of families just say, hey, I want to go to Duke. I want to go play for Louisville. And that's it. You know, there's not much else um, that goes into question. So, I mean, yeah, it's going to be good to kind of hear some information from you. Right, to start us off, um, what does it mean to be eligible? Um, what's the difference in being accepted into an institution um, and not being able to play? Or, you know, can you talk us through that? Yes, there's a lot of different statuses. And I think this is why it can be really confusing when a parent goes from like, I want to go to, or a kid goes from, I want to go to Duke or Louisville to like, what does that mean to actually get in? And so there's like standards that um, need to be really understood. So there's the NCAA standard and then there's the institution standard and they are not always the same. So um, that can be really confusing as well for a prospective student athlete. So first and foremost, to be eligible with just the NCAA, right? Um, there's standards for division one versus division two. Division three has its own set of rules. JUCO has its own set of rules. NI, NAIA has its own <laughs> set of rules. Okay, so we're gonna go over each one of them like really briefly. Mm -hmm. So for division one and two, you have to have 16 core courses. So I can send you guys a, a link to what that means. Basically, mm -hmm. you have to have so many classes in English, history, science, math, whatnot. And it breaks down to 16 core courses from your high school. You have to have for division one eligibility, at least a 2.3 grade point average in those core courses. And then okay. you have a sliding scale approach to the ACT and the SAT test scores. So what that means is that the higher your GPA is, the lower your test score has to be for eligibility purposes. 
the lower your GPA is, the much higher your test score needs to be. So there's actually like a, a document and a scale and I will send it to you after this, Dan, and you can send this link out to your, um, to your viewers. Um, and basically you kind of like look at where's my GPA and then, you know, this is the test score I would need to probably get in, in terms of the NCAA. Okay. okay. Division two is exactly the same, still 16 core courses, still, um, the sliding scale approach. The only difference is the GPA is a little bit lower. It's a 2.2 within those core courses. So as you hear that, you're like, that's not that bad, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. That's not that hard. Um, what makes it difficult to get into different universities is that the universities themselves have different standards. For example, you mentioned Duke at the introduction. Mm. They would not accept a student with a 2.3 <laughs> and, uh, you know, a, a lower SAT or ACT score. Um, for example, my husband worked for the Duke softball team for a period of time and they don't accept students that don't have an ACT of at least a 27. So that's pretty high. Yeah. That's hard. And they expect high GPA students and that's a Duke standard, right? So you can be eligible from the universe or from the NCAA and still maybe not be into the, the kind of athlete that would get into a Duke versus a Louisville versus a New Mexico state. Um, each one of those schools also has standards. So that's something that you have to think about when you're looking at different schools is where's my GPA and test scores and would they allow me to probably do well there? Not just like get in, but do well at that institution. Right. Okay. So if you're a JUCO or division three institution, if you're looking at them or coaches have contacted you from either of those types of universities, all their eligibility is determined by the institution. So basically, like, I don't know what their eligibility is. Each school is completely different. Okay. So when you get contacted by a coach from a JUCO or a D3 institution, you need to ask really upfront and honestly, like, well, what would it take for me to get into this school? Because each D3 is different. Each JUCO is different. And a JUCO just means a junior college, a two-year college degree. So you can come out with an associate. So that tends to be like community colleges. Okay. Um, so you, so the NCAA or, you know, the governing body, what is the governing body for a JUCO? Is there different ones? Yeah. So they have their own governing institution. It's like N, NJ, NCJAA or something like that. It, okay. They have their governing body as well. And the same with the NAIA, they have their own governing body. And the NAIA has some pretty set standards. I don't know if you want me to mention those too. Oh well, yeah, sure, definitely. Okay. Got so NAIA is um, 18 on the ACT or a 970 on the SAT. Those are the minimums. And then a minimum score of a 2.0 GPA on a four point scale. So for international students, that can be a little bit difficult because a lot of times their universities don't have the traditional American 4.0 scale. Mm -hmm. So you just have to work with someone at that institution to get your uh, transcripts kind of like interpreted to what it would be on the American scale. Um, and then you have to graduate in the top half of your class. So you need to be in the top 50%. Now you only have to, this is why compliance is so fun and confusing. Oh, wow. You only have to, to meet two out of those three standards. So you either meet the test score and the GPA, or you meet the top 50% in the GPA or however it works out. So question, sorry. So when you say your class, do you mean, is that in terms of people applying or you mean 50% in your school? 
where you study your, like, your high school class you're graduating okay. high school class are you in the top 50 percent or the bottom 50 percent if you're in the bottom 50 percent and you wanted to go to an naia institution you would need the test score minimum and the gpa minimum to get in wow. now okay. for the most part these minimums are not too too difficult right like that's a c average for the most part and a pretty C average test score, right? <laughs> so, so thinking about that, like if you're a student who maybe just like hasn't really clicked with like high school material or that kind of um, model, like maybe going to a JUCO or an NAI where the standards are a little bit lower and you get a little more personal attention because they tend to be smaller universities um, to get your grades up and to do better at the college level before you either transfer or maybe you just stay at an NAI for four years. Whereas division one and two are a little bit more competitive in the types of athletes they recruit. So although these are the minimums for the NCAA, you might be competing against 15 other basketball players who have a 3-8 and a 27 on the ACT. And a coach is probably going to pick that athlete over one that isn't doing as well if their talents are about the same. Okay, yeah. yeah, 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 it definitely does. Um, when you was talking about the ACTs and the SATs um, and you was giving us the scores, what's, for those that don't know, what's the maximum you can get so they can kind of gauge? Um, you said Duke's like a 28 on the um, ACT, so what's the maximum? The maximum, I'm pretty sure the ACT is a 36. Okay. Um, so a 27 is in the upper percentile for like Duke athletics. They tend to want students that are 27 and above. Um, mm -hmm. SAT, I'd have to Google it because it's changed. Because when okay. I took it, it's different. And then when it's been, let's see, SAT. The maximum score. Yeah. Um, 1600. Okay. Okay. So, um, and what would you say is a good score? I know it's I know it's on a sliding scale, but you say if someone got yeah. like an eleven hundred, I would say yeah, you want to be, you know, a twelve hundred or above. If you're okay. wanting to go to like a more prestigious academic institution, right? Okay. Um, but like I said, though, there's a sliding scale approach. If you're somebody like me, I didn't take tests well. I still don't take standardized tests well. They make me really nervous and mm -hmm. they give Same. me panic. Um, mm -hmm. So like I didn't do particularly great on my SATs, but I had a 3.8 in high school. So it was like, okay, this works out. So okay. they did that on purpose to try to help athletes and students who just don't take tests well to not just have a set standard. The sliding scale is supposed to help you. Okay. Ivy League schools, um, what would be, you know, to get into an Ivy League school, and I know they don't, uh, normally do athletic scholarships, but they do academic. And what would we be looking at if you wanted to go to an Ivy League? Like what kind of scores would they have to be? Would you have to have a 4.0 and a 1600 to get Yeah, in? you need to be basically as close to the top as humanly possible um, for Ivy League. Most Ivy Leagues are admitting students that are above a 4.0 range. So they're taking, you know, um, AP, which is basically college credit classes in high school and they're getting um, higher GPAs for making A's and those or B's and those. Um, and then if most Ivy League kids are as close to the perfect score as possible. Like they're not off by very much. So oh, wow. that can be intense. <laughs> but the 
one thing that's nice about being an athlete is there tends to be just a little bit of a softer approach <laughs> to admitting you, right? <laughs> like, but I'm not trying to say that like athletes aren't intelligent. They're super intelligent, but like they, they tend to take that into account. So athletics can maybe get away with somebody having a 1400 instead of a 1600 at Harvard or I don't know. Um, but I don't know the set scores. I think that would be a better question to, for someone that's looking at Ivy league to go and actually like, uh, email an admissions counselor at one of the Ivy league institutions or try to find their information. A lot of times it's on their websites, like what they want in terms of, um, you know, scores or, or GPAs. And I know Ivy leagues really look, um, favorably upon people that have like lots of you know clubs and experiences and volunteer mm -hmm. hours so there's a lot that goes into an ivy league application versus a state school or a different private school fair enough okay i think that's really good to know we've had uh one of the our female athletes um she went to the university of uh, pennsylvania um okay. yeah she you know spoke a little bit about that um are there grading requirements to play in the NCAA and, and NAIA and JUCO? Yeah. And do they need to be upkept as well? Yes, very much yeah. so. Um, okay, so to get into school, right? We're just talking about from high school into college. Um, you have to meet those requirements that I outlined before to be what's called a qualifier, meaning you are able to receive aid, so receive scholarship money or financial aid or academic scholarship money. Okay. Um, you're able to immediately come on the campus and play and compete and practice. If for some reason that just wasn't quite there, um, you could be at a division two, what's called a partial qualifier which means you have not met the GPA or test score requirement. So again, mm. thinking about that D2 test score requirement. Um, so you, you've not met one or the other and that's okay. Basically they give you a year at the institution to kind of like get adjusted to college, get your grades up. So you can still receive money. You just can't compete for that for whole first year. So As you can, in, practice, you can okay. be with the team, um, you can receive scholarship money, both academically or athletically. Most of the time, if you're someone that's partial qualifier, it's probably just athletic money at that point um, mm -hmm. until you prove otherwise. Um, but you just can't compete. And that's okay. only, that only happens at division two. Oh, not at division one? Correct. So this is like a weird okay. thing that only division two does. Okay. At division one, you're basically either a qualifier or a non-qualifier. <laughs> you either meet all the requirements and you can um, get scholarship money and you can play and compete and practice or you're a non-qualifier. It means you don't meet the academic requirements and you can't get money and you can't compete and you can't practice. Man, so you can basically be a member of a team, but you not really are a member of the team yet because you can't really okay. do anything. <laughs> so you can't practice, you can't like weight room or anything. Right. And so most of the time when somebody, let's say, has said, let's say you had an athlete that you know that so they wanted to go to Louisville. Okay, we'll just take this example. Mm -hmm. And they just didn't really have a great experience in high school. And for whatever reason, just didn't do as well academically. And mm -hmm. so Louisville says, hey, you're a non-qualifier, which means if you come here, you're coming here and just getting in based on Louisville's academic admission standards, 
And for that whole first year, you can't practice, can't play, can't get scholarship money as a, let's say, basketball player. So if I'm the athlete, I was like, man, that really stinks, right? Like I really wanted to go to Louisville. What we tend to hear is those kids that are non-qualifiers get told, why don't you go play at a JUCO for a year and get your grades up? Why don't you go to an NAIA and get your grades up? And then you can transfer back to the division one school. So that's, that's like that, you know, most of the time when somebody's a non-qualifier, they're not going to go just sit on the bench and sit in the stands at a division one school. They're going to go somewhere else and play and get their grades worked out and get maybe some extra help and tutoring and, and just kind of learn more about how to like study better or do well in school. And then they transfer back to a division one or two school. Perfect. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, and is it the same? Do you know if it's the same um, at the NAIA level and the JUCO level? So do you have to have um, a certain grade point average or a certain standard of, of um, you know, grades to play at, at, at those levels? There is a standard. I don't know off the top of my head what it is. Um, okay. so there's always a minimum standard no matter where you are, right? Like okay. if somebody's offering you money to come to school there, there's going to be something tied to it. Um, I do know that at JUCOs and NAIs, it's lower. It's not as strenuous. Um, mm-hmm. So again, that's why we see a lot of athletes that have struggled maybe in high school. They go down there first mm-hmm. and, and get the support and help, smaller classroom sizes, small team setting. Um, and then, then after that one or maybe even two years, maybe they decide to stay for two years at a JUCO, then they transfer to a division one or two institution. Um, but yes, there's always a score. There's always a minimum. And, <laughs> and do so, they, do they need to be upkept as well? So, you know, yeah. let's say I, I came in, you know, I've done my first semester. I'm currently at a, you know, a 3.5 or, you know, 3.2. And then the following semester, you know, I've broken up with my girlfriend, I'm really missing home. Um, and my grades dropped to, you know, a 2.6 or a 2.7 or whatever. Um, I, will I still be eligible to play, even though, you know, I might have started off good or I'm a really good student? Um, how does that work? Yeah, so this is like the fun question, right? Because, okay, so basically, yes and no. It's the easiest way to answer this. Okay, so if you, let's say we'll take Dan as an example here. You mm-hmm. enter at UNM, you do really well through the fall. Let's say you make a 3.0. And mm-hmm. then in the spring, like you said, your girlfriend breaks up with you. Mm-hmm. It's basketball season. You've never encountered a basketball season. You're a freshman, you're playing. You just, mm-hmm. you have a bad semester. Let's say you make like a 1.8 or something. Oh, wow. I don't know. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I don't expect this of you really, Dan. Um, <laughs> this, is our, this is our hypothetical, Dan. Um, then you might be in jeopardy of your GPA falling too far below the minimum standard for um, kind of like each semester, each year. What we tend to see is that coaches will require or encourage their athletes to go to summer school to get their grades back up. So basically you have one full calendar year to keep your grade at the minimum. So that's why we see so many athletes that end up in summer school. I'm sure you've seen this trend or know Mm -hmm. this trend. Mm -hmm. Um, So if you had like a bad fall or spring, then you can use summer school to get your GPA back up to the standard it needs to be at. Again, the NCAA has a standard, but so does every institution. Uh... And so does every coach. So... 
Okay. Like for example, my coach, you couldn't fall below a 3-0. The coach I played for. Yeah, if you did, yeah, yeah. there were some some remedial things you had to do. Um, but I think the standard at our athletic department was only like a 2.0, which isn't hard. I mean, it's a C average. It can be mm. done. Um, and I know that that's, that kind of carries throughout the NCAA is like the NCAA standards throughout continuing. Um, it's called continuing eligibility or continuing education as you need to stay right around a 2.0 or 2.5. It kind of increases as you go through your degree. And if you don't meet that in that year period, you can use summer school credit hours to try to get back up. Nice. Okay. So that's the, that's the real reason for summer school is trying to make sure that they're good or to or, kind of help erase. Or if you're somebody like me, so I was a good student, but I really understood myself well enough to know that like during softball season, it was really difficult for me to take a lot of credit hours. So full semester term is 12 credit hours. Right. So that tends to be a three hour class. So you would take four classes. Not every institution is three hours, some are four, but traditionally most schools have three hour classes. Um, so sometimes I would take more classes in the fall, knowing that my spring needed to be lighter because that was softball season. Or I would take summer classes, knowing that I could lighten up my spring semester. I was always trying to like compensate for that spring semester needed to be easier because that was softball season. I was going to miss more class. I was going to be away from campus more, less time to study. Um, so it's not always remedial. Sometimes it's strategic. Okay. 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 So, okay. That makes sense. And I guess that will help. As you said, it kind of helps um, the workload. You know, you say, okay, I'm going to take a, a class, uh, less credits, during basketball season and then I'll do more outside of basketball season and so on and so forth. So, um, yeah, yeah that's, that's pretty good, pretty good strategy, I think. Um, it works for me. I don't know how it works for everybody else. <laughs> it works for me. Um, when does your eligibility clock, starting from, you know, um, high school coming over, um, there's yeah. been a, a lot of confusion and stuff, you know, is it age dependent or graduation dependent? Is it both? Yeah, so each each division and each section has a different role. So we'll go through each of them. And for international students, this is super important because the systems that international students typically play in overseas are very different than the United States systems. Like, and what I mean by that is like the travel, um, AAU, you know, amateur level is very different overseas than it is in the U.S. And so, what we don't want to ever have happen is any athlete ever take any compensation in any form for playing. So no prize money, no, no goodie bag, no nothing. Like do not take money, do not take gifts for your performance because uh, that can be counted against you because basically the NCAA rules that you are a professional athlete and you're no longer amateur if you take some kind of reward for your play. I mean, yeah. so you you can't get a gift card or, you know, you can't, there's a Subway voucher, you know, you won a tournament. You're not supposed to take stuff like that. Now, each, this is why I say the NCAA is fun and confusing and, and compliance is fun and confusing. There's always an exception to the rule, but I've seen a lot of international students get flagged for playing in semi-pro leagues or taking money for prizes and tournaments or something. And then they lose eligibility when they come to the U S to play. So my advice is always just like, don't take it. Just be like, thank you. 
thank you for the subway gift card, but I'm gonna decline that. Like, as, as silly as that seems, you never wanna have that stuff held against you. And okay. I think it's easier to just be super conservative than anything. But in terms of eligibility clock, JUCO does not have a clock. The NAIA does not have a clock. Oh, there's still time, let's go. Yeah, neither does the <laughs> D3 school. Okay, so what does that mean though? Just because we say there's no clock doesn't mean there's not some rules. There's also no age limits for all three of those. So JUCO, NAIA, and Division Three. But once you decide to start competing in any of those three levels, you only have, um, at least at the NAI and Division Three, you only have 10 semesters to complete four years of competition. Does that make okay. sense? So you basically get an extra year to kind of like pause or stop your clock if you need to, if like life happens oh. or um, this is how you see people take red shirts and still have eligibility, things like that. Um, if your school works on a, a quarter, system which is super confusing i hope no one is going to go somewhere where there's a quarter system it's 15 quarters so i know okay. i'm like just go somewhere where it's a semester it's so much easier to <laughs> um but the juco you only have two years to play because it's only a two-year school yeah. that makes sense okay. division two and division one are more fun more confusing okay. so division two it's the same rule, 10 semesters for four years of competition, but you can pause your clock in division two. So okay. what does that mean, right? Because everybody's like, what? What this means is that if you decide to drop down to part-time hours and if, mm. if you're not competing, that time does not count against you. So what uh. does that mean? I've seen football players do this really well. Okay, so they, so they, especially at the end of their degree, they decide to drop down after football season ends. So let's say you're a junior, you just had finished up your football season, which was in the fall. You drop to part-time in the spring because you're not competing, right? You're just having spring practice. Mm -hmm. And so that semester doesn't count towards your clock. Then they drop okay. back, they come back up to full in the fall. So they can like do this system where they try to like finagle a little bit more in mm -hmm. division two, but it's still 10 semesters. So you can't just do this forever. You can only kind of milk the system for like one year. But then if you, if it's paused, then, oh yeah, it is 10, uh, I don't know. That's pretty clever though. Yeah. I had a football player that did that when I was working in compliance and I was like, technically that's not against the rules. We can figure this out. <laughs> But Division One, because I'm sure most of your athletes are probably wanting to go to Division One schools. Everyone wants to go to Division One, and everyone right. wants so, to go to Duke. <laughs> right. So here you go. Here's the the scenario. Here, Division One, you your clock starts the moment you graduate from high school. So as soon as you graduate, if you don't enroll in that first semester after graduation, your clock has already started. So really, yeah. So what does that mean? It means that you have five calendar years to complete four years of competition. So if I graduate in spring of 2021 from high school and I decide I wanna go backpack through Europe and delay my entrance into college until spring of 2022, mm -hmm. I can do that. And hopefully I've got a scholarship and a coach and a team that's cool with that, but I don't get that fall back. My clock has already started. 
So yeah. that's interesting. So what's so do you not get a gap year? That's the 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 um the question. There's a lot of um players that go to prep schools, go to academies for a year and all the rest of it. Um do, are they not allowed that a year period between graduation and getting into school? Traditionally, no, but there are always exceptions and waivers that you can fill out too. Uh, okay. Into. There's always always an exception. Why the NCAA compliance manual is 328 pages long is because every time they create a rule, somebody's like, "I think I can find a loophole," and then they have to like make an amendment and make an addendum, and so. I always tell people, this is what I think, let me check the rule book or let me get back to you because there's always an exception, there's always a waiver, there's always a 10.8.2 B, C, D, F, E, like, mm. yeah. So traditionally most, most students, especially in the United States, will graduate high school and immediately enroll that first fall term at their institution. Okay. And so that's why international students sometimes can be hurt by that clock, is if they don't do that. Um, but again, there are exceptions, there are waivers that you can fill out. There are circumstances where the NCAA can be vetoed to allow you um, to not have your clock started. Start. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's interesting. Um, are there... It's a lot to remember, so. I mean, hey, and this is, and this is, um, for me, this is the reason why it's really good um, to have you here with us today because uh, I'm sure there's a lot of families that are watching now, a lot of players and stuff, and like, oh man, I thought it was this way, and you know, just having an idea um, and making a move from that. So yeah, this is this is absolutely great. Um, are there exemptions uh, for injuries or reclassification? Yeah, you can redshirt if you get injured, um, which is what most people tend to do. Um, however, <laughs> there's a fun rule about redshirting. It's it, nothing is as simple as it's it's stated, right? Um, okay. When you redshirt, you have to redshirt after a certain or before a certain percentage of the season. And okay. so what that means is if if you want to come in as a freshman and you just think like let's say you're our imaginary basketball player that wants to go to Duke, right? Mm -hmm. um, there's a ton of seniors and juniors on the team and the coaches are like, Hey, we really want you to come here, but we do advise that you redshirt because we're not going to, you're not going to see a lot of playing time in your first year. So some freshmen especially will take a redshirt year. And what that means is that they um, basically just get like a pause to like, just do well in school and to practice with the team. Um, sometimes coaches encourage it for players that are just quite not quite at the level they need to be at to be mm -hmm. at you know Division One level, and so that doesn't hurt you, right? So you're still on the team, you just can't compete. If you compete in even a second of the game, your red shirt is void. So that's like a fun little tidbit. Like don't let that happen to you. Okay. Um, now yeah. there's also medical red shirts where. If you get hurt, you can apply for a medical red shirt, which also, again, keeps your clock from going too fast against you. Um, and that, again, has a percentage of the amount of season that has been played at the point where you get hurt. Mm -hmm. And I can't remember off the top of my head what it is, but basically, I think it's like 20 or 30 percent 
once you've mm-hmm. passed so much competition in the season, um, they don't allow a medical red shirt anymore. So like you just kind of like lose that. Lose so that, yeah. let's say for your basketball player ex- example, if they get hurt in the fifth game of the season, then they can probably get a medical red shirt no problem. If they get hurt in the last five games of the season, they're not going to be given a medical red chair. They're just kind of going to be like, that stinks. I'm sorry you got hurt. Just a tough luck, Chuck. Yeah, uh, tough luck, Chuck. Maybe next year. Maybe he, next year. He'll work hard all summer to fix it. Um, so, yeah, there's like a percentage of the season, and every sport has a different percentage and, and how that looks, especially oh, with the amount of okay. games played. So that's why I don't want to say, like, it's this. But I think okay, it's yeah, about yeah. 20... 25 percent of the season once you surpass that they kind of are like mm, no but again uh, i think that's where you've you've got to talk to the coach that's where you've got to talk to the compliance officer and make sure you understand what that is for your particular sport because some sports are much longer than others their seasons are different the amount of games they play so like the percentage looks different for every sport Ooh, okay um yeah. is it possible to I guess combine shirts. So could you have a regular red shirt and then a medical red shirt or have a medical red shirt and then red shirt again after that? Yeah, this is where you see players that are there for like six years, right? Cause you're like, how the heck is what's his face been at this institution forever? He's like 27 years old, he's got a full beard. Like how is he there? <laughs> and that's totally a joke, fans. That's totally a joke. Um, <laughs> no, you can combine red shirts, like, but you can only have, so let's say like, Again, our imaginary Dan goes to Duke <laughs> and Coach K tells him, you know, Dan, I just think it'd be best for you to redshirt this first year, get some more experience, get some playing time in year two. So you're like, okay, coach, whatever you say, I'm on a full ride, whatever you want me to do. Mm-hmm. So you redshirt. Well, let's say in your junior year, you get hurt in the fifth game of the season. You can mm-hmm. take a medical redshirt too. Okay. So you can have both, but you can't have more than two. You can't have more than, okay. And what is the... So if you, you got know, hurt again your senior year, they would tell you, tough luck, Chuck. Man, they said that. So you get two, basically, you get two red shirts. That's like the max that they'll give you. Now, I say that, but then like, look at coronavirus and how that's affected the NCAA and, and eligibility. And so like, maybe this rule will change. I'm not sure. Okay. Um, yeah, there was the uh, uh, talks about... Um, reclassifying juniors and, and uh, sophomores yeah, uh, not juniors sorry, sophomores and, and freshmen so it's gonna be super messy for the upperclassmen because one little tidbit about how college athletics works is when a senior graduates right their money has already probably been distributed to a freshman coming in uh, right so like yeah. there's only so much money that's given every year there's only so many scholarships per at, per team right? Mm-hmm. So every sport gets a certain amount of scholarships. Some sports are allowed to break those up into percentages over a certain amount of players. Um, especially at like the division two level, you see this a lot. Like, so I only have, let's say for softball, I have 12 scholarships total, but there we tend to carry a roster of 24 athletes. I could like break a scholarship into force or half. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Some sports you can't do that in like basketball is one of them. Um, football is harder to do that in volleyball like there's certain sports where they don't allow you to break it apart like that um, so that's something to ask too like whatever sport that your clients and your people that are watching your um, mm-hmm. film or 
are into, like they need to ask about that. Um, but um, once you've been like given the scholarship, typically coaches are promising that for four years. Some schools are really great about that. Some schools basically are like, listen, you know, you signed a national letter of intent, you know, the signing day that everybody panics and loves, loves, mm-hmm. loves to publicize. Um, technically the NLI is only for one year, traditionally. Some schools have moved to where they will guarantee that money for four years to an athlete. Some schools are still on a one year. So there is the potential that somebody could tell you like, you know, again, good luck, Chuck. Tough luck, Chuck. Yeah, we've given your money. (laughs) So coronavirus makes this super interesting for upperclassmen because a lot of times coaches have already decided like, okay, for my next class, I've already thought about how I'm going to spend that money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when a senior says like, hey, I want to stay, because of coronavirus, now coaches are like, tough luck, how, Chuck. How do we, yeah, I don't know that it's tough luck, Chuck, yet, but I think that there's going to be a lot of questions that the NCAA has to answer here soon. Man, Chuck's having a, lo- uh, a rough ride, man. Giving given Chuck a, a, a tough <laughs> luck about four times now. Um, are there any, while we're talking about shirts, or talking about, are there any other shirts? I know I, I was speaking to, a player yesterday and he said there's a gray shirt so i was like is it like the infinity stones there's like a yellow shirt and a blue shirt and i i don't know what's the how many shirts? Yeah. no no it's just red shirt and gray shirt um oh, the gray shirt just means you delay the start of school until the second term of your freshman year second term of your okay so you just come in a semester later okay and why would you do that what's the purpose of Mm, maybe you just needed some time. Maybe you had some life events happen. Maybe coronavirus happened and you didn't want to go to online school. So you decided to wait till spring. Um, maybe your coach and you had a conversation about it. It's, it tends to have a negative connotation, like, Hey, you're not ready for college. Um, but it's not always meant to be that sometimes it could just be like life has happened and I'm going to take a second before I come to school. And how does that, does that pause your clock as well? Will you? It's a tough one. Um, again, yes and no. <laughs> <laughs> that's, something, that's something that would be better asked if you, if a coach decides and you decide to do a gray shirt, like ask mm. a lot of questions about what that means and will that affect your eligibility over the whole time? Um, because whether you do it at different levels changes it. And so um, I don't want to give like a yes or no mm-hmm. right now. I think it would be best like if somebody's getting um, asked by a coach to do that, or maybe they've thought about doing that to just recheck with the compliance office at whatever institution you're looking at to, to ask more questions about what that means. Because obviously that is meant to help people that need help, but you also don't want that to, to take oh, off yeah. the time that you can play. Okay, fair enough. Um, <laughs> it's crazy. The answer to everything in compliance is yes and no. <laughs> like, yes, yes and no. no. <laughs> um, are, are there any implications for when you transfer? Um, you know, there's, a, there's. Uh, I think at the high school level now, I'm finding out that if you transfer, let's say, uh, your sophomore year to your junior year to a different school, then you might have to set out a year or what, like, what is the deal? in college 
Yeah, so there's a bunch of different rules about transferring, and transferring has has changed dramatically in the last couple of years because of okay. the invention of the transfer portal. So what does that mean? What is the transfer portal? Everybody wants to know what that means. Mm. So basically, let's say that Dan has gone to to Duke and he hates it and he's just not happy. Not um, enough court time. Yeah. Mm -hmm. He didn't. He didn't redshirt and uh, he's just not playing and he doesn't get along with the team or the coaches and so he's decided he wants to go to Carolina because he's mm. smart like that and he wants to go to a better school. Oh man. One that Dr. Smith likes more. <laughs> um, just kidding but not really um okay. so let's say let's say you wanted to transfer just out of the school uh -huh. um you would have to go talk to the compliance office and basically indicate that you would like to transfer typically you would also have had a conversation with the coach and this is where it gets super fun for athletes because it's so hard to go into someone's office and say you want to transfer and i transferred so i understand this from a personal level I had to walk into my coach's office and be like, look, this just isn't for me. I was playing at a division one school up in New York and I was really far from home and just kind of miserable, just not happy. Um, wasn't playing, got hurt, didn't red shirt, all of the bad things Ugh. that you shouldn't do. Right. I did them. Um, so once you establish with your coach that you're going to transfer, you go and talk to the compliance office and they enter your name into what's called the transfer portal. So the NCLA recently, and I think it was like 2016 or 17, invented what's called the transfer portal to make transferring easier for athletes and for those poor compliance officers having to do all the paperwork. Um, so mm -hmm. instead of it taking a really long time to fill out all this traditional paper paperwork and submit it to conference offices and like get approval for all of this, they invented the transfer portal where your name goes in and coaches immediately can see who wants to leave. So there's like dates involved in that. So it's not just like poof, obviously. Yeah. Like now I can take anybody. Um, there's dates for each sport as to when a coach can now access you in the transfer portal. So what that means is after a certain date, so for fall sports, it's October 15th. Um, basically after october 15th if you're in the transfer portal a coach can now contact you mm, okay. so they can say like hey you know i see that you want to leave duke like you know have you thought about coming to carolina or louisville or wingate or wherever <laughs> like, yeah, 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 yeah. they they try to go after you at that point because a lot of times you know think about all these high caliber players like people know about you and they knew about you when you were in high school so like when you enter the transfer portal it's like the chirping begins like who's okay, gonna grab yeah, this person yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah so in order to transfer though you have to be in good academic standing so this is why keeping your grades up is super important throughout college because no one's going to take you if you're not doing well in school okay um you have one <laughs> this is where it gets fun you have one transfer without penalty if you're going down especially so let's say like what i did i went from a division one school to a division two school i didn't have to sit so that's like super helpful for people that maybe are thinking about what division they want to play at and if they want to leave behind whatever they're at if you move down it's easier Okay, okay, so if I went division two to three or one to three, like I don't, I never have to sit. When you move laterally, that's where it gets confusing. Um, most of the time, people now can get 
on one year over, right? So this is where you see athletes that file for um, exemptions or waivers or like reasons okay. why they want to like not have to sit. Traditionally, if you move from a division one to a division one, you need to sit a year. Okay, sure. But again, mm -hmm. you can file waivers and extensions and, and kind of like amendments to that. Ways right? around, okay, loopholes, yeah. okay. Maybe yeah. it's that your coach left the university. Like there, there are lots of reasons why people transfer and why they leave. And so some of them are out of the student athlete's control and they shouldn't be penalized to stay at a university when like their entire coaching staff gets fired or leaves, you know, like yeah, that's yeah, 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 that makes sense. Like there are circumstances right like that where they allow transfers to get approved, but I'm sure you've seen in the media and I'm sure people listening to your podcast have seen them in the media. Like there are times some people transfer and they're like, oh, it should be a shoe in and they deny them. And you're like, what? Mm. So there's no like secret formula. The only secret formula I can tell you if you want to transfer is if you go down, you'll never have to sit. If you have to transfer twice, would you like definitely lose a year? So you said there's loopholes or whatever. If you, you know, uh, Duke was no good, North Carolina was no good. So I'm going to, you know, Florida State. I'm like, Florida's the place, the weather's great. You know, I'm going to- Yeah, Florida. oh, that's hard. Um, Hmm. I would say you're going to have to sit at least at one of those. Like okay. there's not too many times. Let me see if I can look real fast on this. So there's a bunch of like, um, little guides that are really helpful on the, on the NCAA's website. One of them is the four year transfer guide. One of them's if you're going from a two year school to a four year school, some mm -hmm. of them, it's called what's called swirl transferring. This is super fun. You go two, four years back to two, or like two, two, four. Like it's super confusing. <laughs> like let's not let's not worry about too much. Of that. Yeah, yeah. But like, yeah, um, yeah, swirling, transfer swirling. Um, yeah. So like, there's a bunch of stuff on these um, guides that kind of explains more about like how to make sure that you're not going to be the transfer athlete that ends up having to sit or like what that looks like, or are you somebody that is okay with sitting? And so what does that mean for you? Um, so I can send you the links to these cause that would probably be Perfect. easy to see. Yes. That's, that's, that's I don't want to, I don't want to go too, too far down the transfer hole cause it's super confusing. Yes. Yeah, yeah. It sounds like there's a lot. It sounds like every element, especially dealing with compliance is super interesting. And it's weird because like, you know, the, the majority of what you said is like, okay, here's the rule, but then we can write, you know, sign a waiver or, you know, get you out of having to follow that rule. Yeah, like there's all kinds of exceptions to the rule. Like my husband was a transfer. He, he went to a four year institution and he decided he wanted to play in grad school, um, but he competed at a school that didn't have a a division one team they just had club team and so then he was a granted an exception so like there's like a lot of times that you can get waivers or get exceptions but that takes one you as the athlete being um really empowered to like to voice that you you want to be given that waiver and exception doing a little homework on your own or with your parents to a compliance officer that's going to put in a lot of work for you because to do the waivers, there's a lot of steps. There's a lot of documentation. And so that means that person's really going to have to work really hard to get your eligibility um, at this new institution. So 
Yeah, there's a lot of great resources. The division, like if you just go to ncaa.org/student-athletes, um, there's a bunch of transfer toolkits. So guide for four-year transfers, guides for the Division One, Two, II, or Three levels, flow charts if you want to go from a two-year JUCO to a four-year. Like there's a lot of like good information here that can kind of help you. But I'm assuming most of your audience is high school that's going into college, right? Yeah, I, I would imagine so. And, um, you know, there's going to be a couple that are watching that are uh, needing information on transferring. So I think, yeah, it's a, it's a great thing that we're speaking about it. Um, yeah, I'll send you as many links as I as I can today that I feel like are really applicable that that help. I mean, they the, the guides do do a good job of trying to break down the really complicated to really simple. I don't know that I'm doing a good job of it today, <laughs> but... Um, yeah, the guides do do a good job, kind of like giving you a really simple overview of what the process is like. And then obviously, like if you're somebody that's a special case, then you will have a lot of different things to deal with. But for the most part, people can transfer based on these guides pretty easily. Okay, perfect. What advice would you give to international students thinking about, you know, yeah. um, you know becoming collegiate students? Yeah, my biggest advice for international students, especially just as somebody who worked with a lot of them when I was in compliance is go to a school that fits you and what you want, not has to be division one, has to be power five, right? I think, especially in the United States, that idea of like, I have to be a division one athlete, um, it reigns supreme. And, and the thought process is if you don't go division one, like you're not as good or or you can't go play pro if you don't go division one. And that's not necessarily true. If you have high talent and skills, no matter where you play, like you'll get seen, somebody will find you. Um, but I think it's more important to think about like, what is best for you? If you're a student who's super shy, who really likes like intimate um, classroom settings and time with your professor, going to a Louisville is not a good school for you. They have huge student classes, right? Going to a Tennessee where I went for graduate school where they have 27,000 students is probably not going to be the greatest like school for you because it's going to feel super big and overwhelming. You know, going to a Duke which has 5,000 students or an Elon, which is a division one school in North Carolina that has about 4,000 students, like that kind of stuff matters. You need to think about like not only what's best for you athletically, but like how are, how do you learn? What kind of sources, resources do you need like to do well in school and in athletics? And the other big advice is like, especially for international students, because a lot of them can't visit in the United States. They have to do a lot of like virtual visits or or maybe they do get to come over for an official visit, but yeah, typically it's only yeah. like once. Yeah. Um, ask as many questions as you can to the coaches. If there's something you really are burning and care about, like maybe it's playing time. Don't be afraid to ask about it. Just ask really blatantly, like, what are the chances of me being able to play if I come here? Or maybe you really care about, I don't know, the food on campus or um, mm -hmm. your major, like ask questions about that. So if I want to major in biomechanics, would I be allowed to do that here? Would I have the space? Would I be allowed to cater my schedule for labs? Like. That's a great question to ask because you don't want to get there and and be like, I really want to study this degree. And then the coaching staff ends up telling you like, no, we can't we can't work with that schedule. Like you can't be you can't major in that like that happens more than I like to say. And so just like yeah. be really um, 
courageous and asking questions to the coaches and don't be afraid to really ask things that you really care about because you want to get to know them and you want to also kind of get to see a little bit into who they are as like advisors and mentors and coaches like do they really care about you on academics and athletics do they only care about athletics um, are they going to support you if you want to go study abroad or you want to do a more difficult major like those kind of questions are really crucial because everyone sells during visits everyone tells you about everything beautiful and wonderful and all their resources and all the money they have and all the cool things they have every school will sell you on the cool stuff it's important to ask the really detailed questions to find what school's best for you i think that's yeah i think that's um a, a great a great um point um i had a, a player um who his ambition he wanted to play um he wanted to get a scholarship. Um, I don't think it was particular. He didn't really care about the level, but he just wanted the He wanted his education paid for, and you know, really talented kid. Um, and he was like, "Look, coach, I just want to go somewhere where the weather's nice, um, they've got beaches, and they do my course." Um, and that, to me, was kind of like once he understood or once he expressed how he wanted to choose his school. I think he, his process, his time there was, a, you know, really, he enjoyed it a lot, um, you know, and I think that's, once you realize that there's more to go into a school than just the basketball, then, you know, I think that that is, is a big determinant factor in, you know, selecting schools. So yeah, that's fantastic. And I think um, that the perspective is that division two and three doesn't have the same level of competition. As somebody who played a division one and division two, I can tell you my division two team would have wiped the floor with the division one team I played with. Whoops. So don't think that just because you don't go division one or division one power five, doesn't mean you can't find a conference or an environment that's super competitive and that's gonna allow you to reach your goals. Um, I think your athlete that came to you with those kind of parameters, that was really smart because he probably did open the door to a lot more institutions to get a full ride. Um, I think it can be really hard when people say like, I'm only going to go division one or I'm not going to go anywhere. Like mm. there are a lot of great schools that are division two, three, JUCO, NAI, where there's funding and they can, you can play for free or pretty darn close to it. Mm. And um, that's better than getting in mountains of debt. Um, to go somewhere where you're not going to get to play in my perspective, but you know, I, I'm an advocate for D2, so take it right <laughs> <off>. <laughs> Um So this is the, you know, I always do two sections of these interviews and I should have sent you these questions, but I didn't, but it's not that difficult. Okay. Um, it's, it's, the, it's, it's, it's the touristy bit. Um, okay. So when you played softball, you said you played D1. Where was your D1 again? Manhattan College. It's in Riverdale, New York. Okay, cool. And where did you play D2? Wingate University. It's outside Charlotte, North Carolina. Okay, cool. So the questions I'm going to ask are, what are what's the weather like in both of those states? Manhattan College. Super cold, super rainy, super snowy from the months of October to April. So that's why for me, I had a little rude awakening when I went to school there. I was like, wow, it's like pretty frigid here. And I'm sure you can tell I am from the South. So <laughs> I was not prepared for that kind of cold. I've never grown up in that kind of cold. 
Wingate, um, it's typical Southern weather. It's, it's pretty mild. I mean, even the winters, like maybe it's a month of winter. Um, never had a practice that was under 40 degrees, which was super awesome for a softball player who's outside all the time. So That's part of the reason I wanted to leave was I wanted better weather to play. Okay. That's a nice, uh, you know, and that's, this section's all more like touristy trivial just because, you know, yeah. you never know. Um, I know when I went to Oklahoma, um, I had, I was under the illusion that it was 24 seven 80 90 degree weather and then when the blizzards and snow came i was yeah i had a rude awakening yeah the midwest and, gets cold which i didn't know nobody told me i never had this information and i was wearing anything warm i could find from walmart <laughs> uh you know i went there and i just did like a whole like yeah i had a winter closet from walmart so um that's great must see places in manhattan oh, um man. yeah I mean, like all the touristy ones, like you should go to Central Park because one, it's beautiful. And two, there's like so many cool, like little touristy shows that people like are always putting on like crazy shows, just like all the shows that you see on TV. There's always someone street artist performing in Central Park. Definitely go to the Museum of Natural History. I went 10 times while I was a student and still <laughs> never saw the entire museum. It's that big. Damn. It's huge. Um, go to Chinatown for one, the food, two, the shopping, three, the experience. Mm -hmm. um, I was so blessed because Manhattan College, the one train, which is the train that runs all the way from the school, it literally drops off right behind the school, runs all the way down to downtown Manhattan. Okay. It's a 45 minute ride to go to, to Manhattan. So I did, I did everything. I went to all the cool suburbs and parts of uh, New York, but I mean, if you've never been to the city, you should definitely go to like Times Square and do all the touristy stuff. Go to Central Park, go see the Statue of Liberty. If they'll let you in it, sometimes it's not, they don't allow you in it anymore. Um, go see the 9-11 Memorial, like things like that. What about in Wingate? What was oh. the best, best places? Wingate is uh, 45 minutes outside of Charlotte, North Carolina. It's out in the country. It's like really country, um, like farms and all that good stuff. So we had much more like of a let's have fun on campus experience. So get involved in all the clubs <laughs> on campus, go okay. to all the like cool events that they host and concerts. Um, there's not really, I mean, there's some cool restaurants and stuff around the school, but um, honestly, they just built a major highway through there, so I'm not even sure what's down there anymore. It might have all changed. It's been a while since I've been back, but um, I think when you go to a smaller school, a lot of times they are in a little bit more remote locations or mm -hmm. things like that, and so you just need to be super involved with all the campus activities because otherwise you're going to be bored. <laughs> <laughs> fair, fair enough. Best place for food that you went to? Hmm. Manhattan? Yeah. Oh man, that's hard. Um, you know, I honestly can't even tell you the name of the restaurant because it was this super sweet little Italian family like three blocks up from campus and they couldn't speak any English. They were like pure Italian. Everything was like grandma's cooking in the back. It was amazing. I won't, I, I don't even remember the name of can't it anymore. Remember. Oh man. I know. Um, I mean, in New York, you can't go wrong. Like legitimately, you can walk out the the dorm and there are 12 different restaurants all kinds of ethnic and multicultural food like 
that was the biggest thing that was really cool for me. Like I grew up in Southwest Virginia where like barbecue or fried food is like all you have. That's it. So going there was like, I got to experience Indian food and, you know, African foods and different cuisines. And so that was really cool for me. But yeah, I don't know that I can remember a set restaurant because it has, I I went to school there in 2007. So it's been a while. It's been, it's been a minute. So it's fine. Um, well, I'm guessing by your previous answer, Wingate, you know, you didn't really go anywhere to get food and it was like campus or nothing. No, we had a we have a couple like Mexican restaurants that I would highly recommend. Ooh, okay. One of which I this is gonna sound so bad and I'm not meaning for it to sound bad. <laughs> I don't know the name of the restaurant, but if you go to campus and you ask any student hey, where's the best Mexican restaurant to go in town? They will tell you Sketch Mex. That was the name, the nickname of it because it was this like Sketch little Mex. hole in the wall, mm -hmm. like restaurant around the back of like a warehouse. And it was like, it made you were like, oh, I don't know that this is where I should be getting Mexican food, but it was the best place to eat. So anybody from Wingate will always say like, go to Sketch Mex. And you're going to have to have someone that's been there take you there. You're not going to know how to get there. It's like a secret thing. You can't, you can't put it into your Uber app and... Yeah, no. you can't put it into Uber, Sketchmax. Nobody will know what that means. <laughs> fair enough. Okay, fair enough. I like it. Um, exclusive. Um, right, so when you was in school, um, was, you, uh, was you a big shoes person? Do you get a lot of um, sneakers and stuff? Hmm. No, not really. I'm a bigger shoe person now. Like okay. adults, um, no, not really. I would say like more like um, my big thing was always like t-shirts. At every uh, Wingate event, they would like entice students to come by t-shirts. I had over a hundred different t-shirts from Wingate when I left, like geez. just going to events and stuff. Yeah, so well, my thing was t-shirts. One of the questions I normally ask is where's the best place to get new kicks, but if you're not a kicks person, then I guess you wasn't worried about that when you was going yeah, to school. Yeah, maybe Amazon. I mean. <laughs> Best American holiday. As a, as, as, as a college athlete, what's the best, um, what's the best American holiday? Softball's hard because we didn't get to celebrate many um, because we're always in some sort of season. So like we didn't get fall break because we were playing mm -hmm. and we got to go home for Thanksgiving. Um, and I, th I think Thanksgiving or Christmas is probably my favorite just because that meant I got to go home and see my family. You're towards the end of the semester, like, you know, the stress of finals, like you're about to be done. Um, but I guess as a player, um, we went to Savannah, Georgia and competed in like a tournament one year um, where mm -hmm. we played a couple teams and we did like a ghost tour and like um, ate at some cool restaurants down on the river. And like, that was my spring break that I remember because I was playing. So I didn't get to like go do spring break like a typical student. That would probably uh, be, I guess, my best college athlete holiday. Um, I had a, a player from LMU and I said, to, you know, I gave him the same question. And he was like, coach, man, they're all the same, man. You don't get no breaks, you, you know, you don't get no time off. So there's no best holiday. <laughs> Well, that's kind of funny. Not, um, not exactly wrong. <laughs> yeah, I guess if you, you know, you're playing, uh, but I think, I don't know. Uh, I haven't been here yet for Thanksgiving, but I think the consensus is Thanksgiving is the best. 
you get, you know, at least the evening or, you know, the day and you just sit, hang out and eat. And, you know, even if you're not around your family, you know, if you're an international student and you're not around your family, you get to be around family. That makes sense. You know, go to coach's house, go to, you know, teammates house, blah, blah, blah. It's always the point in the semester where you need it too. Like Thanksgiving is right before finals and all the major assignments are due. And it's nice to have like, even if it's just for the day because you know, you're an in-season athlete, like it's nice to just like hit pause for the day and um, you know, hang out with teammates or, or other friends. If you're an international student and you can't go back home. Um, yeah, I think, I think Thanksgiving would probably be my favorite as an athlete. Nice. Awesome. Where can international students get more information on eligibility? Yes, I mean, for eligibility purposes, you can definitely go to the NCAA website. Um, what I will say is the sooner you can um, register with the eligibility center, so the NCAA has the eligibility center, typically they tell you to register about the time you're a sophomore in high school, maybe the end of your freshman year or sophomore. Um, you go in, you create an account, um, you start entering in your information for academics and athletics, and um, then you can start like notifying perspectives. Like you can say, these are schools I really think I wanna go to, and you'll start getting some information from those institutions. Um, but I will say most institutions have an international admissions office, like New Mexico has this particular office that's just for international students. So I would reach out to them and, express interest in the university and ask for some more information about how they can help you because they're the office that's gonna help you with your visa and with travel arrangements and things of that nature. And if you go to a smaller school that doesn't have its set international office, they will have a counselor that specifies um, in international student athletes or international nice. students. So nice. they'll have someone that like really knows the answers to your questions. So um, I just say do your homework and, and register for the eligibility center go on to the NCAA's website and start becoming familiar with their resources and then start reaching out to the schools that you're interested in into their admissions office for international students but my like absolute best advice to international students is that they should wherever they are like looking at as their top you know three or five schools like become very acquainted with whoever is in the compliance office they need to become your best friend because you're going to be in constant contact with them because the steps unfortunately that international students have to go through are just so much more lengthy because typically their transcripts don't look like united states transcripts there's a lot more questions they have to ask about amateurism and and their status and stuff mm -hmm. so just like whoever the compliance officer is um they need to be buddies <laughs> and what's the best way to buddy a, a compliance officer What's the, yeah, what I think like, well, one, so what tends to happen is a, a coach will say like, you know, these are my prospective students for um, this coming year. Like they let the compliance office know, like these are the athletes that I'm looking at and considering. And if it, there's a group of international students, then they've already been flagged and told to the compliance office. Um, so hopefully the athlete has had good contact with the head coach that they're potentially maybe wanting to, you know, come play for. Um, and at some point, typically there's like an email connection, but the athlete is always welcome to reach out directly to the compliance office and just say like, hey, I'm an international student and I really want to come here and I want to be on top of it. So what can I do to like be proactive to make sure that things go smoothly for my eligibility? Like that goes a long way. Okay. 
Okay, marvelous. That is um, a lot of information. Um, hopefully, no one's head is exploded. Uh, they probably and, are, and that's okay. You know, ho hopefully, uh, you know, our guy Chuck from all these discussions. I hope Chuck's doing okay. Um, moved him on a, a fair bit, but no, um, Dr. Smith, it's been an absolutely amazing experience having you here with us, um, giving us great content. Um, and yeah, I think, you know, you said you're going to send or give us the links, uh, information afterwards. So, um, I'll put that at the end of this video. Uh, so thank you very much for coming and hanging out with us today. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me and you can feel free to share a little bit of my contact information. I don't work in compliance anymore, but <laughs> if you're interested in sport management or, or programs about sport management, I'm happy to answer questions about stuff like that. Um, so you can share my email and, and all that. Marvelous. Thank you very much. My name is Dr. Allison Smith. Thank you for watching the Euro Step In. It's been a pleasure to be here with you all. The game was different, right? The, the, the rules was different. The ball oh, was the Euro, different. The, like, Euro, the Euro style is different in America. The Euro style was a lot different <laughs> in America. <laughs> That's the Especially, first time y'all seen that Euro step too, huh? Absolutely.